You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bo's Nose Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. And now, here's Jay. Good afternoon, and welcome to another edition of the Bose Nose Show, and I'm your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich, and we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon, where it's a sunny 80 degrees, clear blue sky, couldn't ask for better weather, so why in the world did I decide to drive across country to Kentucky and back over the last couple weeks? Uh, Well, that's pretty simple. It was to visit my wife's dad, who is 96 and a World War II vet in his nursing home. Uh, and the only way to do that is to do that really um, by driving there, because we can do it in our airstream, where we are managed to keep ourselves COVID safe the whole time, as we we're completely self-contained. Brought all our food with us. We didn't even buy fast food on the way across country. The only thing we bought going across country was bottled water and gasoline for the most part. Uh, so, which, by the way, cheapest gas, South Dakota. It was a sixty something at one station. I mean, it was incredibly cheap compared to Oregon. In fact, almost every state was cheaper than Oregon, with the exception of some states, when you get up in the altitudes, um, they drop the octanes down, and my car recommends not dropping below 87 octanes, so I had to buy mid-grade uh, in some of those high-altitude areas. Um, but we digress. We're here to talk about all sorts of things on the Bo's Nose Show. I do want to just talk a little bit about that road trip because, um, you know, it was – we decided to do that because we had my wife's cruise to Hawaii for her 60th birthday canceled by COVID-19. So this was our 60th birthday celebration for my wife. And it was the longest trip we'd taken with the Airstream trailer. And and the first time we really tried to haul long distances with it and all that, we were doing close to 500, an average of 500 miles a day driving um, to get all the way over to Kentucky and back in less than two weeks and actually have some time there to visit with her sister, uh, brother-in-law, and her dad. Um, And uh, it was interesting to be going across country with all the the COVID stuff and seeing kind of um, some areas were really uptight about it. Some areas weren't so uptight about it. Um, You know, we saw masks in, 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 uh, you know, Indiana and some of those states. South Dakota, I don't think I saw a single mask in, in South Dakota at all. Um, it, it, it just varied by where you were. You know, the nice thing about pulling your own RV along is you pull in, check into the, and pull into your spot, completely self-contained, you know, no one within six feet of us for sure, and uh, all of our own food, you know, own toilet facilities, own shower, everything's right there. Um, makes it for a pretty safe trip uh, compared to getting in a uh, an aluminum tube and with recirculated air from a hundred other people. Uh, so and, and going through crowded airports and everything else. So it was interesting. Uh, our country is beautiful. It was gorgeous. We took a northern route on the way there. I ninety basically uh, went up through. Idaho, Coeur d'Alene, and uh, Montana, and South Dakota, swung on down from Iowa and Indiana into Kentucky, came back to Missouri and Kansas, um, Nebraska, you know, Utah, and uh, Idaho again, came 
you know, went out I-84 up the gorge, came back through Burns on Highway 20, so got to see our beautiful state of Oregon. Um, we just have some gorgeous countryside uh, across this country, and it was just a really nice break. A lot of the time I was driving, so I couldn't get text or do it, you know, and we were in the middle of nowhere, so we were listening to books on tape, went through four books on tape during the trip. It was really great. Um, listened to you know, a book about uh, Mount St. Helens, listened to a book about the Oregon Trail, these guys that took mules across the Oregon Trail in modern day. Uh, yeah, it was just a great trip, great, great break. Felt like I was out of touch, though, and a lot of stuff happened while I was gone. So we ought to talk about some of that stuff. Something's happened right before I left, and we didn't get to talk about it on the Bose Nose Show. One of those things that we didn't get to talk about was the idea of changing the name of Lane County. And really, I don't mean changing the name as much as changing which lane that we're honoring with that, that name change. So it really, um, for me, it, it the idea that we could actually find a different person with the last name of Lane well, I don't even care if it's Abby Lane that we renamed Lane County after. Joseph Lane is not a person that I want to honor. And you, you know, I've had folks on here about human trafficking before. We've talked about human trafficking on this show. It's something I think that is to enslave people. Um, it's one of the reasons why I dislike some illegal immigration because quite often illegal immigrants end up being enslaved by their status. Um, Joseph Lane was a loud advocate for slavery and the enslavement of his fellow man. He actually kept a slave illegally in this state after it was banned from this state. Uh, had a Native American boy he kept as a slave. Um, he wanted Oregon to accept slaves into it prior to it becoming a, a state when it was a territory. Um, he ran as the vice presidential candidate for the southern wing uh, of the party in the Democrat um, party. It, you know, it, it, it was you know, clearly a, a strong supporter and an active activist for slavery. So it's really difficult for me to know that our county is honoring somebody that really was such a, a vocal voice. Uh, for the enslavement of his fellow man, so found out through Commissioner Sorensen that King County had changed their name. Now everyone thinks, what, King County is still King County, isn't it? Yes. Apparently they were named after somebody named Rufus King, who also has a, a not-so-great past, and they renamed their county after Martin Luther King Jr. So it's still King County. They didn't have to change their letterhead. They didn't have to change any signage. They didn't have to change the business cards for their employees, nothing. All they did was go through and redesignate who the county was named after. So I kind of wonder what other people think, because I, you know, and I've had, I put it up on Facebook and I've got some feedback, uh, good and bad on it, about the idea of changing lanes, not names so much as, as who finding somebody with a last name of Lane, and there are a couple of them. There was a governor later on that's actually the grandson of Joseph Lane named Bob Lane, who was um, a fairly decent governor of the state uh, in the 30s. Uh, so, you know, there's other people with a last name of Lane that we could name. I mean, I even heard somebody suggest Lois Lane because, you know, after all, who could be against a county named after Superman's girlfriend. <laughs> so I want to know what you think about changing lanes and, and not changing names for Lane County. You can give us a call because this is really an interactive show. And the number to call is 646-721-9887. And don't forget to press one so we know that you actually want to get in on the show live because we do occasionally have people that call in just to listen. So 646-721-9887 and press one because that lets Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, 
know you want to get on the show. So you can call in and tell me about maybe your road trips cross country. I didn't even talk about having four standard poodles with us on this road trip at the same time. But if you looked at our, uh, our promo on Facebook and saw the picture, uh, they, they were great. They loved the trip. They slept in the car um, and just enjoyed the fact that they were with their parents 24-7, which hasn't changed much with COVID-19. This, you know, COVID-19 stay-at-home stuff's been the best thing that's ever happened to canines <laughs> in, in the world. But, you know, you can call them. We can talk about, you know, road trips. We can talk about changing lanes. Well, we can talk about a whole bunch of other stuff, and I've got a whole list of things to talk about today. And if there's no one that wants to talk about changing lanes, we can move on to this whole thing that's in the news about this, quote, explosion of cases in COVID-19 across the country and how there's this second wave. And, and, and I want to get down to um, understanding that data without context leads to inaccurate conclusions. And the folks that keep talking to you about case numbers are giving you data, but they're not giving you the context for that data. And, uh, you know, I, you know I, I, I just want to, to first talk about just here in Oregon. You know, we have changed by a lot, how many people are actually getting tested. I mean, when we were originally into this thing, we were lucky if we could get 100 people a day tested in Lane County. We are up to 600 people a day on weekdays, over 600 times the number of tests are being done. Might expect that to lead to more cases. Now, in addition to that, the Oregon Health Authority has issued orders to the county health departments changing how we report cases. So we're not even talking about apples to apples when we talk about case numbers from a couple months ago to case numbers today. They are requiring us to include in our case count presumptive cases of COVID-19. Now, presumptive means that you've had to have been exposed to somebody that has tested positive for more than 15 minutes in an indoor situation and you're exhibiting COVID-like symptoms, but you haven't been tested yet and had a positive test come back. It's not 100% sure presumptive case is actual or real case. Before, the only thing we were reporting was actual positive taste test results for the COVID-19 virus. So we went from reporting positives to positives and presumptives. Now there's not a lot of presumptive cases here in Lane County. It's not a huge number, but it's, that's a change. And, and when you talk about doing that statewide, that can change the numbers significantly pretty quickly, particularly as we start you know, the, the definition of that. They also had us change our reporting on recovered cases. Now we're not allowed to call them recovered. All we're allowed to do is talk about a new designation of people that are considered infectious. So we're kind of following the bouncing ball here in Oregon. More testing, redefinition of, of what a, a case is being counted and redefinition of who's considered recovered versus infectious. So all of that's to say that case count increase has more to do with just more people being tested and how we're counting them than anything else. So what I want to have people focus on are two numbers that you can't really monkey with. Other than, you know, unfortunately, now this, the CDC is including influenza and pneumonia in with its COVID-19 deaths. But hospitalizations and deaths are much more likely to be um, 
where you're going to see the actual, you know, uh, increase or decrease in in this this pandemic. And I, I had a couple of of quote slides for those of you that are watching Facebook Live or you know the podcast over the internet with with video. Um, and I'm going to ask uh, Robin to put them up there. I have one about changing changing lanes, but we'll skip over that one uh, and go to that first one on national testing there, uh, Robin. And that's the one that has the COVID-net in the upper left-hand corner. Um, but that is a picture, and it's a screenshot from the CDC's site of how many tests are being done every day nationally. And of course, the last week or so, there's, there's a lag in reporting. But you can kind of see, in March was actually our peak number of hospitalizations in, this, in the country. But look at the number of tests we're doing now compared to March. From about 10,000 a day to now we're doing 25,000 a day nationally think that might lead to a higher case count. So if we go to that second um, slide there, Robin, this is, this is for Lane County's testing. And Lane County's actual peak number of hospitalizations occurred, I mean, not Lane County, but Oregon's, occurred early in March. And you can see we weren't even up to 100 tests per day in early March. We're now exceeding 600 tests in a day. So just think about, you know, would that lead to a higher case count? Now, third slide I've got in there is hospitalizations nationwide. And of course, the data here also has little colors uh, for what age group you're in. And obviously, the higher the age group, the, the, more, the greater percentage of the hospitalizations you are. Um, but if you kind of notice something, hospitalizations peaked for COVID-19 back on in, in mid to late April and have actually been going down ever since. Yet the case count, you know, active case count, not the, not the recovered folks and all that stuff, has been going up at the same time. So remember that national testing, 25,000 versus 10,000, you would really expect to see, you know, if, if it truly was about more people were infected versus we just didn't have enough testing to identify everybody, and I still think we're under testing, you would see these hospitalizations trending upward, and they're not. So the final slide I have up there is basically um, Oregon's hospitalizations for the whole for the whole state. And yes, there was an upward trend in hospitalizations uh, in early June, but it's actually starting to taper back down. Um, and that and one of the things you're seeing is that you're not seeing a corresponding trend in ICU hospitalization. Yeah, we saw our, our max hospitalizations back there that week, March 22, back when Lane County was testing less than 100 people a day. So um, what we're seeing, maybe not so much as a second wave. Um, Yes, I do believe there are some additional cases as we did loosen up some of and went to phase two in some areas. There are people that um, are getting the disease new. Um, and But I just don't think it's quite as bad as some of the newspapers and TV reports are making it sound like because they're not placing, as I said, data without context leads to inaccurate conclusions. And they keep talking only about case numbers. And they're not giving you that context that we're testing 600 plus people a day now in Lane County instead of less than 100. And they're not giving you that context that the, the definition of 
who were counting in that case count changed when the state of Oregon ordered counties to include presumptive cases in their case count. And they're also not talking about the fact that they also changed the definition of who's recovered and the active cases. So, and, and, we, and they don't even talk active cases now, they talk about people that are infectious. So all sorts of things changed that if you only talk about the case numbers, you're not getting the full picture. So I just, I'm saying that so people can understand not panic because I've actually had people ask us about going backwards, going back to phase one, maybe even going back to the governor's complete shutdown of the state. And I believe that the damage that would do economically would be worse than the damage that the virus will do. In fact, one of the things that was in the news in the last couple of days have been that the death rate from COVID has dropped so low that it almost doesn't meet the definition to be declared a pandemic by the CDC. It's right on the edge, the, the mortality rate. But one of the things the CDC is qualifying that with is they believe the mortality rates can climb over the next couple of days as more deaths are, and, and uh, coroner's reports are being finalized and it won't slide back and being a non-pandemic according to CDC's definition of what a pandemic is. But we're right on the edge. Still a dangerous disease, still something folks should be taking precautions against. I don't want to get it. I don't want to give it to somebody that's vulnerable. Because one of the things that is clear about this disease is it has a huge impact the greater your age is and if you have any sort of um, other uh, medical issues like diabetes, heart disease, um, COPD, there's you know high blood pressure and a few other things are, are really um, complicate this disease if you get it. Um, so I don't want to accidentally, if I get it and then transmit it to somebody else, be responsible for that person being hospitalized and possibly dying. So I'm taking precautions still about social distancing. I'm still washing my hands to you know, the point where I'm using a lot of hand lotion that I never used to use. And um, I do wear a mask, which leads me to another topic I wanted to get to on the Bo's Nose show. And I kind of, kind of wonder if the phone's going to ring off the hook on this one, because, boy, it certainly has gotten a lot of, of uh, uh, play on, on social media. And that's the face coverings mandate by the governor for the entire state started on July 1st, which I, I came back into the state on July 1st. So um, I came back to mandatory face coverings in public, going indoors in buildings that are available that are open to the public, such as your local uh, Fred Meyer or uh, Ray's Food Place or restaurant, whatever, although once you're at the table, you can take your face covering off. Uh, so it's a little, little bit odd, some of the rules, kind of got to know the, the rule book. Um, but I kind of wonder what, what the folks out there listening to Bo's Nose Show think about the idea of being mandated to wear a face covering. And then if you're an employee of one of those stores, how do you feel about the possibility of having to confront customers? Are your employers asking you to? Because I listened to a lawyer um, in a radio interview on Monday about this, and there have been multiple incidences of assault on store employees for simply, in one case, it was recorded on video at the Santa Clara liquor store there in that same Fred Meyer shopping center there in Santa Clara, which you know I've been to. As somebody was leaving the store without a face mask on, a store uh, worker informed them that there is a, a mandate, and the next time he comes in, he should have a face mask. Didn't really tell him he couldn't be there or anything like that, but the guy reacted immediately by punching the guy in the face and decking him. I mean, it was just like instantaneous anger. It's like, oh, my gosh, why does that guy deserve that? You know, hopefully they'll they'll get the guy arrested and he'll be charged with assault. 
um, because that's what it is. Um, but, you know, I know there's some people that feel very passionately that, about not wearing a face mask. I kind of wonder somewhat because it, it, I know they're a little uncomfortable. Um, I can see maybe if you have um, something like COPD or, or asthma, if it's going to set off your asthma, there may be some medical reasons, which you should be able to get a doctor to write you a note about. Um, but then there's other options. You can actually get one of those full face uh, clear um, uh, plexiglass sort of face uh, shields that would work uh, as a possibility. But those face coverings are more about just preventing the droplet uh, spray from your own cough, sneeze, or popping your peas while you talk, um, and, and less about protecting you from the virus. It's more about just containing your own um, spittle, so to speak. <laughs> uh, and I just, you know, I'll continue to wear one when I go into public places. Um, you know, I. I my sister-in-law, um, not the same sister-in-law we went to visit Kentucky, the one my brother's wife in Delaware um, is quite handy and a quilter and actually sewed us up a bunch of, with different fabrics. And my favorite one has you know, flags and eagles on it, um, quite patriotic looking, fit in really well over the fourth weekend. Uh, so they can be made. When I, before I got those, I was wearing bandanas instead. You know, the definition is face covering versus, um, you know, you don't have to have a surgical mask, a surgical quality M95 mask, which if you are trying to protect yourself, you start getting into that some of that surgical quality stuff. And then you have to know how to wear them, um, can't have facial hair with them. There's all sorts of things that, that make those effective or not effective to actually uh, preventing breathing in a virus versus just trying to to slow down and contain your own uh, breath from spreading beyond your 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 immediate person. So uh, it was interesting to come back though to a mandate. I kind of felt like we didn't have to get there. I think we could have done um, much more on the educational side and trying to get people to wear them. Um, and it's kind of surprising. It seems to break down somewhat by um, political leanings, whether people want to wear them or not. Um, I do understand the idea of the liberty issue around the mandate. Um, and that that's kind of why I felt, thought they could have done education and voluntary for longer um, and, and see whether there was a real issue. Because I do think, like I explained earlier, case count growth is more about testing growth and redefinition than it is about some huge uh, change in, in transmission in the state. So that gets me to some other issues that are somewhat COVID related and some other things that happened while I was gone, which seems like, oh my gosh, this whole Black Lives Matter protest is now morphed into defunding police, and now it's morphed here locally into um, the jail's got to let everybody out and, and uh, protect them against the coronavirus because we're not doing enough, which is highly untrue. We've made huge changes in jail operations since we found out about COVID-19, and I do think we're doing a good job of protecting the inmates, and, uh, you know, they just it seems like they, they, they're trying to morph this whole movement but, and have some reason to protest every single day since, you know, for the last three weeks um, to get a protest going. And eventually some of these protests get out of hand. Um, you know, unfortunately, one of the ones at the jail got out of hand. And there was a fair amount of property damage included. Hopefully, just like the one on the first the first protests that got out of hand and turned into a riot and there was property damage. They are looking at videos and everything else, and there will be people charged eventually with some of the crimes that were committed. Um, and they continue to work on that. 
But I just want to talk a little bit about our jail and COVID in case people haven't heard or understand. You know, we, we have a jail that has a capacity of, of 557, but we haven't had it open to that capacity because of funding reasons for quite a long time. So it's really only been um, at about 380-some uh, capacity. And we've cut that down below um, into the 200s with COVID, basically doing that by um, being a little bit, um, you know, not taking people in that are low risk um, and holding them uh, necessarily uh, and doing that through a risk um, assessment tool and pretrial services to get people back out on, you know, on, on bond bail or their own recognizance prior to trial. Um, and, and as people were released, not, you know, taking new people in, but we've gotten it down to where we've got 200 and some single occupancy sales cells in the jail, as well as these dormitories. We're not letting any dormitory get up to more than 50% of its total capacity. So we're only using half the capacity of some of the dormitories and folks can ask to be in a single sale. A lot of them want to be in the dormitories because there's a lot more freedom of movement because when you're in the single cells, you come out for, you know, meals and exercise time and things like that. But the rest of the time you end up back in your cell by yourself. Um, and it's not as nice in some ways, but they are able to provide, you know, fair amount of distancing. They're actually, as they take somebody in, they're isolating them in a isolation cell for a minimum of seven days. They're monitoring everybody's temperatures on a daily basis. Um, all of the uh, jail staff are being tested on a fairly regular basis. We're doing testing amongst the jail population. We've only had one inmate show up positive for COVID-19, and it was somebody that was only here temporarily for a hearing transferred in from a state facility where the state facilities haven't been doing so well with COVID-19. But he was only uh, here briefly in an isolation cell, never mixed with the general population. There have been no transmissions um, connected to that inmate at all uh, in the jail. But, you know, multiple, multiple things we've been doing you know, with our, our medical provider there in the jail to make sure we are being safe. The reduction in capacity, the, the ability to provide distancing, um, all the testing that's going on, monitoring for symptoms, the isolation of new inmates. Um, it, it's all ties to probably safer in there than it is uh, it, for the people that are out there uh, protesting close together. Um, you know, so it, it's a uh, just want to make sure everybody understands that we have taken significant actions. Um, and, and part of that is we're allowing, you know, normally beyond your, your um, legally mandated ability to communicate with your um, attorney and a few things that, that, are a lot, that are free phone calls, we used to charge for phone calls in the jail. Um, you know, outgoing phone calls from inmates uh, to family and friends and stuff like that. We're not charging for those anymore. Uh, we are, we've set up the ability for inmates to teleconference with their attorneys because there's difficulty having them meet one-on-one. -on -one. Um, you know, there's other things we're setting up, you know, that we've set up that uh, allow for that social distancing. Um, you know, we've set up the teleconferencing without charge to the inmates. Uh, so there's, you know, multiple things we've been doing to try and make it so that, you know, we can provide that social distancing, still provide the connection because we can't really allow visitations um, into the jail easily. So uh, to try and you know, keep the environment COVID free. So we're providing as much connectivity as we can uh, for the inmates with their families, friends, and, and whoever they need legally and all. Um, you know, as this whole thing started, our local public safety coordinating council immediately started having regular meetings to talk about how we're dealing 
with COVID-19 as public safety agencies. And our local public safety coordinating council includes representatives from the Eugene Police Department, Springfield Police Department, the DA's office, the court systems, uh, victim services, you know, the, the sheriff's department that runs the jail, you know, all those pieces of, you know, it also includes folks from our mental health department and our health and human services department that are part of the local public safety coordinating council because it's all interwoven. And, um, you know, we've been talking about how to be proactive and prevent, you know, the spread, you know, for even people like um, sponsors, the nonprofit that, that houses um, folks coming out of prison and, and helps them reintegrate into society after they've served their sentences and how they've had to reduce their capacity and go from having people with roommates to single occupancy rooms in their, in their housing and, um, you know, having to kind of tell the state, hey, we can't take more people out of the prison system, um, you know, just to keep everybody safe. And, and that started immediately, way back, you know, at, at the end of February, where, the, you know, we were having conversations on what was happening. You know, that includes the court system where they, they had to, you know, limit the amount of interaction of people. And, and, and when you think about a jury being seated and having to spend all that time together in close proximity and, and how they had to delay trials and start um, changing procedures where they could allow people to make appearances, you know, by Skype and, and other video um, computer ways to, to at least do initial hearings and make motions on cases to keep them moving as much as possible. But I tell you, there's a huge backlog building in our court systems right now. But they're doing the best they can to keep justice moving in the post-COVID environment and keep people safe. But um, there was a very and, and um, proactive effort by all the public safety departments and public safety-related entities in Lane County and across the state to deal with COVID. You know, we didn't just let things happen with the jail. We actively started cutting down the population, started isolating people, started testing and, and doing temperature checks. So it's, it's been interesting to watch that the background of people protesting to defund the public safety system that's doing so much to try and protect people right now. But I want to take a breath here because we've talked about a few things that really people might want to chime in on from whether it's changing lanes to COVID-19, to mandatory face coverings, to the jail and COVID. You can give us a call if you want to get in on the conversation. 646-721-9887. Just press 1 if you want to get in on the conversation. Again, 646-721-9887. Press 1. That's Robin. My call screener and producer extraordinaire know you want to get in on the conversation here on the Bose Nose Show. If you don't want to talk about COVID or changing Lane County's names or even road trips uh, in RVs with standard poodles, I got a few other things I want to talk about here on the Bose Nose Show. First thing I want to talk about, though, is something that probably people may not have been aware of, but actually was part of our board meeting yesterday. And we actually delayed action on this because Frankly, I wasn't ready to, to uh, approve this uh, updated community wildfire protection plan. And people are like, huh? Lane County's got a wildfire protection plan? What the heck's that? Why, why do they have it? Well, it's all kind of, you know, ties into a federal uh, uh, piece of law called the uh, Healthy Forest Restoration Act that was passed back in 2003, sort of required communities to have these plans. There are three major goals about plans. They had to be collaborative. They had to look at hazardous fuel reduction, and they had to look at trying to um, reduce, this is a strange term, the ignitability of structures. In other words, make, make houses more fireproof. <laughs> I don't know why they had to, 
to choose that wording. But that was the goals in, in the uh, actual legislation. But the actual plan, the goal, the, they're like 20 some actual strategies coming out of the plan with five priority action items that they, they identified. And the reason I bring this up is the number one priority action item is to get a change in Lane County's land use and building codes to provide better wildfire protection. Now, what's that translate to? That translates to the possibility that we might start requiring different building materials, uh, you know, better driveways in, access to, turnarounds, um, uh, vegetation uh, clearance standards in our zoning code and, and requiring, you know, maintaining that. In other words, more costs for you, the homeowner, and not involuntary through education and asking you to do it. It's going to be written into our code and then mandated that you do it. And I don't think people were quite aware that, that the board was working on this update that could lead to mandates about how you keep your home out in rural Lane County. I think anyone is kind of, uh, I don't want to use the word stupid, but maybe ignorant, um, that doesn't protect their home from wildfire, that doesn't do the things you should be doing, like keeping the, the vegetation back nothing touching the actual walls of your house, um, you know, keeping that 30 foot, 100 foot buffers that, that they talk about in a lot of the, in the report. Um, you know, all the, you know, having a plan to evacuate your, your neighborhood should, you know, a wildfire get going and, and you've got to run, you know, like the folks had to down in California. Um, that, that's, all well and good. And, and by the way, one of the, the next priority action plan is actually developing evacuation plans for some of these high hazard communities. But one of the reasons that I wasn't ready to prove it was I was seeing a disconnect between where they were identifying the high hazard communities and where I thought high hazard communities were based on all the work I've done over the years working with fire departments as a water system engineer and planning for fires <laughs> and what makes fires dangerous like hillsides that face into the prevailing winds in the summertime with narrow streets that are hard to get out of and windy and uh, inadequate um, old water systems with uh, you know systems that are dependent on electricity for for water flow um, you know, those are some areas that kind of worry me. And there's some areas in the South Hills of Eugene and the Thurston Hills in Springfield that face directly into that north summer wind um, that I'd be more concerned about than Pleasant Hill that was identified as a high hazard area of the county. Um, so I, there was apparently a document used to, to identify that high hazard area that was not included in the plan and wasn't available that has been made available to me. So I'll be reading that for the next couple of weeks. But if you live out there or thinking about building a home out in the rural area, you might want to pay a little bit more attention to the community wildfire plan and the recommendations it's making relative to possible building code changes and standards for housing out there um, because it could cost you money. So just wanted to make people aware of that. You know, it's just one of those things we have to keep working on stuff. It's actually something that started back in 2018 and, and kind of getting to the, the closing stages where it's coming to the board for approval. Anyone wants to read that, they can go to uh, last uh, Tuesday's, uh, the. Uh, yesterday's, I should say, the July 7th uh, Board of Commissioners agenda. It was item 11A in the afternoon, and there is a link there to uh, view materials uh, on that agenda that will get you to the community wildfire plan. You got to get down to about page uh, 51 to see the actual priority recommendations, um, but 
that was something else I asked them to change in the plan to get the, the five priority recommendations in the executive summary and not have to read the, the entire 124 page document to find what they're really getting to getting at. Um, but that's a little bit of my personal high horse there and how you write a document. Executive summaries should basically be the document shrunk together. Are you trying to jump in, Robin, or is that? No, thank you. Oh, might just be a little feedback on my end, sorry. So that that's, you know, for folks that may not have been aware, we were working on a community wildfire plan, and it does ultimately have regulatory impact, even though the plan adoption of the plan itself will do nothing to change things in Lane County. What it sets out is a list of action items that we will be doing in the future. So it's the initiation of, of some actions. You know, developing evacuation plans, our emergency uh, uh, um, manager and her department doing that, I have no problems with. We should be doing that anyway. But moving on to regulatory items, I, I have, I, it's not that I have a problem with it, it just needs to be done carefully and people need to pay attention to it. Because, um, you know, particularly if they get into denying building permits because of things like high slope or what they feel are high hazards, it could actually make some properties unbuildable in Lane County. So we have to keep a close eye on what they're doing with that, where it moves to next. So always got to be careful in government because they'll start out with something that seems fairly innocuous, which is just a, a um, conceptual plan that really doesn't have weight of law or anything like that, but it's making recommendations to move into things that have the weight of law. So a couple other things I want to talk about was, you know, it is summertime, which, you know, there's actually two seasons in Oregon. There's winter and construction season. And it's construction season again. I just want to remind folks of a few road projects going on and maybe give a few updates and, and let people understand a few things. Um, probably the first thing I want to mention to folks is that that project that's going on at Beltline and Delta Highway up there. Um, it's not the complete improvement of the Beltline Delta Highway river crossing that, that's going to cost close to $300 million, but it's the first phase in getting some of that fixed. And what it will do is probably make things a little bit safer in the afternoons going northbound on Delta to get on to Beltline. And it might actually improve some of the flow of traffic getting off of Beltline on the Delta um, in the long run. But in the next couple of days, I believe next week, they're going to make a major change in that intersection temporarily where if you wanted to, if you're coming northbound on Delta Highway, you used to have to get over, all the way over to the right, right-hand exit ramp off to get eastbound to go towards Costco and Coburg Road and I-5. Now, if you're heading northbound, you're going to actually have to get the left lane and make a left turn and go around and under with the traffic that's coming southbound um, on uh, on. Um, Delta Highway, that same southbound ramp to go eastbound, that's temporary because they have to close that, that, that ramp to eastbound temporarily to do some work in that project. So kind of a major traffic change coming there. But that project is part of some of the funding that came about from House Bill um, 2017, which was that big transportation bill. Um, that we actually advocated to put through. Um, and it's also a part of some of the lobbying that we did personally as Lane County to make sure that some of that money came into Lane County and the belt to, to work on Delta and Beltline and at least start that work. Because at the same time, we're also you know, working through the NEPA process and phases of that, which speaking of NEPA, um, a lot of people may have noticed that there's been survey crews out on Highway 126 between Eugene and Benita quite a bit. And it's kind of like you're looking at them going, what are they surveying for? They're out there in the ditch, flags, you know, they're putting in the ground and stuff like that. 
they are looking for things like Bradshaw's lamatium, which is an endangered species, and defining things like limits of wetlands and a few other stuff as they're doing the environmental survey work necessary to do the National Environmental Protection Act environmental assessment work that's required to get federal funding to eventually widen 126 there going across the causeway. Um, everybody knows how dangerous that road is, how many head-on collisions have been there, how many fatalities, um, also just how backed up it can get at certain times when we haven't had COVID-19 taking a lot of traffic off of it. Um, but that's kind of the initial phases and that that NEPA work is being paid for again with funding that came out of that House Bill 2017. And because of lobbying done by the city of Benita and Lane County and other folks uh, to keep that project moving forward. Of course, the, the actual funding of the project, just like Delta Beltline, the final actual huge 200 million price tag has not been funded yet. So we're still years away from a real fix there. But just if you're wondering why there's a bunch of surveying going on on 126 between Benita and Eugene, it's part of the environmental assessment work that has to be done to get eligible for funding. So now in addition to some of that, just so another traffic report here, I should have gotten, you know, to get a helicopter noise in the background or something like that. I should have let Robin know in advance I was going to talk traffic report here. But Clear Lake Road out here in, you know, coming from Highway 99 out the Territorial Road on the north side of Fern Ridge Lake is going to have a detour next week for a couple of days as they're doing some work there. The county is doing some major road work on that. Um, and I think you're going to have to take Goodman and a few other back roads to get around um, basically um, a stretch of, of Clear Lake Road there. So kind of expect a little bit of problems if you're one of like me coming out of Elmira, that's how I get in and out to, to Beltline Highway and and uh, Santa Clara and some of those areas. Uh, it's Clear Lake Road instead of using 126. So alternate. So they're doing surveying work on 126. At the same time, they're going to have to do a detour on Clear Lake Road. So just be aware of coming out to the lake next week. Uh, you might have to take a little detour. In addition to that, I know the folks down in the rain are really aware of this, but if you're heading down towards uh, Ailsong and um, uh, the uh, wineries down there in the rain area, including, you know, King Estates, I don't know if King Estates has got their tasting rooms open or not, um, but we are doing some significant work on territorial highways south of Ham Road. Uh, on that area they call Rocky Point, where road slides off and we have to keep refilling it every year <clears throat> to stabilize the slopes, take some of the, the sharpness out of some of the curves, make it safer. Also, maybe get a little bit of a shoulder there for the cyclists. Um, but that work is causing uh, one lane uh, uh, traffic quite often with flagging and all that. So just be aware of that that particular piece of work, again, comes out of that House Bill 2017 and a um, swap we made with the state where they took over the maintenance of Delta Highway, which was a county roadway, which, you know, it connects two state highways, I-105 and Beltline. <laughs> I don't know why the county had it. And Territorial Highway is becoming a county road, which makes a lot more sense because it functions like a county road. So, um, but with that transfer, the state gave us money to, to bring Territorial Highway up to a higher condition. And that's why that work's being done out there. So that's the traffic report for the Bose Nose Show for this week. Um, be aware, Beltline Delta detour, clearly detour, Thank you, Robin. 
Ah, yes, it's great to have a producer like Robin right there. And hopefully uh, she was able to get some of those images up of the COVID-19 actual case uh, testing numbers versus case count and the actual hospitalizations. So we're getting pretty close to the end of another Bo's Nose show here. Um, Just want to remind folks, this is a two-way conversation. We've got about five minutes left, and by virtue of being internet radio, I don't have to sign off right on the hour. If you call in now and we're engrossed in a deep conversation, we'll take this as long as, as we need to to finish that conversation. So give us a call, 646-721-9887. Just press 1, and that lets Robin know that you want to get in on the show. Again, 646-721-9887. Just press 1. Because we really want uh, this to be two-way when we can. Uh, we've had some really good callers. Had a great caller three weeks ago when talking about Black Lives Matter, and I didn't realize till after he got off and the show was over that this gentleman who was African American and was calling in about that was calling in from Minneapolis, Minnesota. I didn't realize it till I looked up his area code after the show. He didn't identify himself as, but if you're really curious about a black conservative person's perspective about this whole Black Lives Matter and some other issues, you know, he was kind of pretty strict, you know, strident and and very pointed about how he, who he thought was to blame for a lot of the issues in the black community. And it wasn't the police. So, you know, go back three weeks ago and, and listen to Bo's Nose Show which is available through our blog talk radio site. It's also on our KRBN Internet News Talk Radio Facebook page. You can always just go back down through the episodes and click on the on the link, the, the picture there. It takes you to the uh, to the show and you can watch or listen to the show uh, at your leisure anytime. That's a great thing about doing an internet radio show is it lives on forever, which means, of course, as I run for office, you know, there's lots of material for folks to go through to try and pick something out that I said wrong, (laughs) but that's the way it goes. So um, looks like we're about ready to wrap up. Robin, you didn't get to jump in at all this week. Is that, you know, I I know you were just biting your tongue after two weeks. (laughs) I just have one question. Sure. Um, how did you know that this was the best time to take a vacation? <laughs> <laughs> it just worked out that way. Yeah, you know, we had planned a vacation during this time, and a couple other commissioners also had commitments, so they, they gave us like a two-week gap because of the fourth holiday, and uh, we just took advantage of it and, and got out of here. I tell you, it was really tempting while we were driving home and I was starting to try and catch up on email and stuff to just keep driving. <laughs> well, yeah. I'll tell you thing. I'm going to stop asking the question. Can it get any worse? Cause I, I'm oh, no. challenging. Oh, Please don't challenge 2020 to any more. Yes. I mean, it, it keeps coming. I mean, now they're talking about, you know, brain-eating amoebas. You know, where was it, in Florida or something? Oh, God. Now, if yeah. it was in D.C., I can understand yeah. it, but, you know, yeah. wouldn't and be any The devil's not going down to Georgia anymore because Charlie Daniels passed away. You know, it's like, 2020, stop it, please. Oh, my God. Yeah. I think anybody take any uh, bets on whether we'll make it to 2021? I don't know. <laughs> There was a comic, and I forgot where I saw it, where there were a couple aliens come down and said, we've come to, you know, destroy your planet. And the guy goes, thank God. I thought 2020 would never end. Yeah, no kidding. Oh, man. Yeah. All right. Well, we're about done with the Bo's Nose Show here for this week. We'll be back next week at our regular time and place here, coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, Thank you for listening. Have a great week.